Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back, everyone, to Your Case is on Hold. It's October. It's Halloween season. So this is Happy Halloween from the Your Case is on Hold team. I am Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Methodology at the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. We all float down here. I'm Antonia Chen, Deputy Editor of Adult Reconstruction, and everything flows downhill here. (laughs) Downhill. We all float down here. It's an it reference because it's Halloween. You know what I'm saying? And I'm just saying everything rolls downhill in practice. (laughs) What's your favorite scary movie? Oh, that's a good question, actually. I mean, I'm old school. Like, Chucky is what I grew up with. Yeah. What about you? Uh, The Exorcist. Sure. Yeah, I can't sleep well after that. Watch that. Don't sleep with the lights off. <laughs> uh, uh, this is uh, episode 20 of Your Cases on Hold. They've been letting us do this for 20 episodes already. And boy, do they regret it. Um, <laughs> we are covering the uh, October issue of the journal. This is going to be the um, JBJS that's released on October 19th. So just in time for the scary season. For those who have been listening, uh, as you all know, the opinions and the frightful stories that you will hear here uh, are mine and Antonia's alone and do not reflect the official policy of the journal, the board of trustees or the publisher. Please do uh, check us out on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out at jbjs.org. Please give us a five-star rating and do subscribe so you don't miss any of this fast-paced research action. Uh, This issue, the Halloween issue of JBJS, is brought to you by Clinical Classroom. And uh, definitely check that out for lifelong educational opportunities. We have a special announcement. Special announcement. This is a um you heard it. We got the we got the horn and and the bell for the special announcement. This is about uh large database and registry research in joint arthroplasty and orthopedics from our editor-in-chief, Dr. Swinkowski. It is permanently free, so definitely take a look at that. And then on top of the pile. We also have another permanently free uh, article, What's New in Shoulder and Elbow Surgery by Kim and Colleagues, An Organizational Approach to Addressing Racism in Orthopedic Surgery by Brooks, and What's Important, Alternative Advanced Dissection Arts and Humanities by Veliki, which is also permanently free. This will now bring us into our headlines. I will go first, speaking about the therapeutic effects of conservative treatment with two-week bed rest for osteoporotic vertebral fractures, a prospective cohort study by Funayama and colleagues. This does have a commentary, so you don't have to take my word for it. You can um, read what others think about this very interesting work. I really enjoyed this study and not just because it was about spine. It is a prospective cohort study. It is graded level two, but 
it is quasi randomized because basically you have two different hospitals that treat patients with osteoporotic vertebral fractures in a standardized but different way. One does two weeks of bed rest, and then the the other basically you know treats symptomatically and allows mobilization, function, what have you. I treat a lot of patients with these fractures in my own practice. We do work off the uh, approach to bracing from the article of Kim and colleagues, now probably a classic but published in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, which is basically braces for symptomatic treatment. It's not required, but you know we do use it quite regularly. Um, I do modify the patient's activities for generally about the first six weeks, nothing heavier than five pounds or a gallon of milk, but certainly bed rest is um, <laughs> kind of like hearkening back to the way these things were managed like 50 years ago. But this this hospital is doing it. And, you know, essentially they do bed rest with physical therapy in the bed and they uh, keep them in the hospital for, for the first two weeks. So this included 116 patients that were followed prospectively. They did do a sample size calculation and followed best practices in terms of making those estimates. The average age of the population is right around 80, 81. They had 116 patients total. They also looked at a subgroup of patients, those who had what they call poor prognostic findings. Specifically on MRI, this is a localized high signal and diffuse low signal on T2-weighted sagittal MRI sections and or the presence of injuries to the middle column in the horizontal section of a CT, computed tomography, CT scan. So they have 45 patients in the uh, group with the mandatory bed rest and 37 in the no rest group who had these poor prognostic findings. And what they found was, particularly in the patients with the poor prognostic group, the transition rate uh, to, to surgical intervention or treatment failure, however you want to look at it, as well as mean vertebral collapse progression is a lot uh, lower in the rest group versus the group that was allowed to basically, you know, treat uh, expectantly. So they say the hospitalized bed rest for two weeks reduced the number of patients with fractures who require surgery, and especially so additional benefits in the poor prognostic group. So really an interesting study. They they do uh, recognize in, in their discussion that the translational capacity is probably pretty limited. Of course, keeping patients in the hospital for two weeks is just not copacetic with um, current management practices here, and they are cognizant of that. Uh, They say there there are numerous countries in which a two-week hospital stay for bed rest may not be a realistic treatment option as a result of barriers such as limited bed availability, the cost of hospitalization, et cetera. And I definitely do agree with that. But it does challenge some of the thinking. Uh, It really, this was a a study that definitely made me think. Um, It made me think about my my practice and I really enjoyed it. And again, you know, while while it is appropriately graded as a prospective, it's not randomized, but it definitely has aspects of it that are quasi-randomization. If you look at the demographic table, most of the characteristics are just intrinsically well balanced. And, and unless there was some type of mechanism through which the patients were dramatically different who seek care at one hospital versus the other, you really wouldn't expect that. So the, the, it's like an instrumental variable 
kind of. Uh, and so I'm not sure if you did a randomized study that the findings would really be any different, at least in this in this context. So, um, you know, I definitely think it's an interesting work. I really enjoyed the read. It, depending on the practice setting in which you work, clinical application is probably not that viable. You have to like call up your hospital manager. And I'm uh, quoting Nosferatu here, where you're like, be my ally. Great movie, Nosferatu, by the way, given that it's Halloween. That's what I said to you. Right? (laughs) That's what I said to you. uh, Be my ally, Antonia, (laughs) when I tricked you into doing this podcast with me. Uh, So I appreciate you coming along. (laughs) And um, yeah, no, definitely you should check out Nosferatu in addition to this article. And then also Shadow of the Vampire, which is a 2001 movie, really enrich your life here. I mean, this is this is the service that we're providing to people well beyond just what we're doing with the research. Shadow of the Vampire, Willem Dafoe, uh, Carrie Elius. It's really a great uh, a- ensemble cast. And it's about a vampire pretending to be an actor playing a vampire. I, I know your mind is just blown. I feel on like that. I'm in Inception right now. John Malkovich is in it. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's it, it's it. Didn't get the attention it deserved. And I want to say it's like a cult classic, but I don't think it's a cult classic. Speaking of cult classics, how about the trauma collaborative care intervention that you're going to discuss as your headline? This is going to be an interesting cult classic. You and I have very different definitions of cult classics, apparently. (laughs) So this is a study um, looking at the 12-month effects of the trauma collaborative care intervention, a non-randomized controlled trial. Now, the way they did instead of randomizing is they did cluster uh, studies. And you can probably go much more into methodology because I'm going to pick on your brain for the statistics for this study. But they took six centers that did an intervention and six studies that didn't do an intervention. And what I liked about this study is that most studies in orthopedics have a positive results, especially ones that are multi-center or involve a collaborative. And their early results were pretty promising, but this is the one-year effect of it. Um, And it's an unusual study because it didn't have a positive outcome. And so what they did, again, they did this 12 centers. Six of them didn't do this intervention, and it's a trauma care collaborative intervention. And this intervention really was to try to uh, educate patients and to uh, mitigate potential problems that happen in the um, recovery phase after trauma. And we know this is very true for trauma, right? That patients don't prepare for this in advance. This is not something they come in, you know, ready to take care of, unlike our other elective surgeries. So because of that, you have patients who, you know, may not be ready in terms of functional aspect, uh, might have PTSD, uh, might have anxiety, might have depression from this. So they assessed all these different endpoints. So patient-reported function, and they used standardized um, uh, cutoffs here and, and also standardized metrics. Depression, for example, the patient health questionnaire, nine. Um, and then PTSD, they had a bunch of different questionnaires. So it's good that they used all these things. The hardest part about this, at least for me, is that if you're going to use an intervention, you should have the patient use the entire intervention, right? So there are five segments of this intervention that they included. Um, and these five were, like I said, a TSN handbook education, peer visits, recovery assessment, and calls before and after the recovery assessment. So they really did have a comprehensive network for patients to utilize. And they did make a good point that, you know, when it comes to patients and families, they can utilize each program component based on their needs and preferences. But I think to really assess a program, you want people to assess the entire program and engage in it. Only 29% of patients did all five metrics that were there. So it's really hard to determine whether or not it was actually the program itself that was no different from control, or it's only because 29% of the patients actually engaged in it. 
That's the first thing. The other thing that I had a concern with is that halfway through that or partway through the uh, the study, they realized that PTSD was actually incorrectly assessed. There was an error in the coding of the feedback portion of the recovery assessment. And because of that, it resulted in inconsistent underscoring of one of the domains of the tool for almost for a lot of the patients. So there are 397 patients of that 298 um, who completed it in the intervention arm um, got the wrong assessment. So those who were more severe PTSD were actually downgraded. And because of that, may not have received the necessary care that they want. So part of me says, you know, we've all been in studies before. We don't want to stop it and, you know, go back and redo it again. But this is one of those areas and domains since PTSD was one of their endpoints that is probably really important for them to look back and say, hey, look, this is something that should have been assessed correctly. Maybe we have to go back and you know start from scratch and go for another 12 months, which is incredibly painful. I totally understand that. But when something's assessed incorrectly, that can make a really big difference. So those are kind of the areas I looked at there. The one-year follow-up was nice. You know, normally at six weeks is when you can first get the assessment and that's okay and six months is good. But one year is really when you can see the differences, especially in patients who undergo traumatic injuries. We don't know what the trauma is in terms of like, there was a segmentation of different traumas, right? This is looped in, it's all grouped into one area of orthopedic trauma. You know, do, you know, ankle fractures do the same as pelvic fractures where you're down weight bearing for a long period of time. So those are hard to delineate and tease out with only, you know, approximately 400 patients in each arm. And the one question I have for you is this two-stage statistical procedure. And I think it's actually good because it takes variation in programs and patients into account. But what are your thoughts on the methodology in this study? I think the methodology is quite good. The posterior estimates of the intention to treat effect are definitely, you know, the most conservative and one of the best ways you know, if you go with just a single stage procedure, there can still be a lot of infection in the methodology statistical part. So you got to do that two stage, just like you guys do with the uh, joints, you know what I mean? But in, in all seriousness, I, I do think that that was a, a nice statistical approach. At the same time, there's a lot of material issues, all of which you pointed out already, the, the low adherence or whatever you want to call it, 29% of patients in the intervention group actually got everything that they were supposed to get. So it's, you know, it's one thing if you have a negative study, it's another if it's a negative study, but you don't really know why it's a negative study. And there's no amount of methodologic, you know, fancy outfits that's going to change the, the, the baseline issues with the material data. I think that the conclusion is 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 especially salient and, and also thought provoking because, you know, they say that the program as delivered did not have positive effects. They do think that improved compliance or targeting specific subgroups. I think that's really where the money is. That you know, someone who has a very small, non-significant injury probably doesn't need this kind of thing. And we're really talking about where the value is is in people with very devastating limb loss or. Um, open fractures with a lot of soft tissue loss, pelvic fractures, acetabular fractures, spine fractures, um, probably, uh, especially if there's neurologic deficits. But yeah, like, you know, uh, ankle fracture, or distal radius fracture, this is not going um, to... so much. They're not yeah. calling in. They're getting back to work and trying to get back to activity. So... Maybe not a blanket one, but maybe nice to see in more, you know, they only used one injury. What if they did multi, you know, faceted injuries, right? So, you know, if they're a polytrauma, then potentially this would be a really good assessment yes. for them and a useful. So if they narrow their patient population, maybe this could be really useful. 
All right, now it's time to move into the Your Case is on Hold featurette. Dr. Frankenstein from Anesthesiology is calling. Oh, oh it's it's Dr. Frankenstein. Yes, okay, sorry about that. But uh, yes, the next case should be Hans Delbruck. Oh, uh, Hans Delbruck is not ready to go because they dropped his brain on the floor. So you have patient AB normal is the next case that you want to bring? No. That's we're not doing a B normal today. We're we're gonna we're putting for the first time we are putting the case on hold. We're putting the case on hold on them. Ooh, Agevada, Yatin, Zach I'm speaking to Doctor Frankenstein in his own language there. Take that. Yep. <laughs> Most people think that Doctor Victor von Frankenstein is uh, German, but uh, he's actually, if you read the book, he's Swiss. Another fun fact. Arts and Humanities isn't just in the JBJS issue. It's also on the podcast. Mike drop. Anyhow, <laughs> back to the horror stories. Uh, this <laughs> uh, article that we are covering is Choose Wisely, Surgical Selection of Candidates for Outpatient Anterior Cervical Surgery Based on Early Complications Among Inpatients. This is by Carlson and colleagues. There is a visual summary in our courses that we teach about methodology and when I talk to my research team, we talk about the notion of do it first or do it best, uh, one or the other, right? And uh, I definitely think that this paper has gotten where it is because they're talking about outpatient anterior cervical surgery. The Choose Wisely has nothing to do with the Choose Wisely program as popularized, but it's about outpatient anterior cervical surgery, which is an, um, an emerging concept that, you know, previously all of these kinds of procedures, ACDF, cervical disc arthroplasty, uh, anterior cervical fusions, they were all done inpatient, at least an overnight stay. And now as with total joints, of course, there's a move to, if you can, you know, do these on an outpatient basis and, and not uh, have the patients admitted. But of course, these are procedures that can have um, serious complications, uh, airway, uh, hematoma, and you know patients can decline very quickly. So this was a retrospective cohort study of adults at their hospital, single center, over a two-year period. And they basically looked at rapid response events, and then they looked at kind of acute complications, which is what you're hoping to avoid when sending you know patients home of course you don't want to send somebody home who's at high risk of a complication as we've discussed in the past it's always amazing how the seeming waterfall of patient turns into just a trickle of events they have 1040 patients but they only have 36 patients with a rapid response event and 24 patients with an acute complication and that's it so this entire story this entire story is just based on those 36 rapid response patients and those 24 patients with an acute complication. So the, you can forget about the 1,040. That's just part of the background. They also, uh, in their exploratory analysis, basically included any covariates with p-value less than 0.2 in their multivariable adjusted models. And that's definitely a problem when you look at their table four and see that they have 29 covariates that they are considering. 
So if you actually just did a back of the napkin calculation for appropriate adjustment, this is taking into account the fact that the number of times you roll the dice, the number of times things can come up just by chance. It's a game of chance in this context. It's a roulette wheel every time you're spinning this. And if you're spinning it 29 times, the likelihood that you're going to find significant findings that do not necessarily translate to the clinical reality is, is actually very high. So they're using a p-value threshold initially of 0.2 for inclusion, and then they're obviously sticking to the standard uh, 0.05. But accounting for the number of comparisons they're making, the more conservative p-value threshold should be 0.002. And now, dear reader, if you will look at table four with me, as well as table five, you will see that they have very few p-values that are lower than 0.02. And they use this convention where they just say less than 0.01. So you don't even know what the actual p-values for some of those other ones are. Uh, and I would say again, that 29 was just the conservative estimate. Um, in truth, there, there's probably a, a few more variables that are should actually be factored into. This was just the back of the napkin calculation, as I said, just to kind of prove a point. So there are issues here with restricted clinical variation, truncation, issues with power, issues with the ability to detect interactions and secondary effects among all of these comparisons. Sometimes it plays to their advantage. Sometimes it might be something that's actually very important that they're ignoring because they just didn't have the, the number of variables to give them and the power, and then also the very restricted event rate. So when you get into their table five, which is where they're actually showing kind of the distilled down effects, the things that they want to emphasize in terms of patients that I guess, you know, shouldn't have same day discharge after these procedures or an outpatient, uh, you know, this type of surgery at a surgical center. Uh, cerebrovascular accident, for example, has a point estimate of uh, an odds of 6.9, but the upper bound is 34. And the lower bound is 1.4. So uh, somewhere between a 40% increase in risk to a 34 times the increase of risk. This is just an, an incredible lack of precision that allows us to invest in this point estimate or any other. Then they have anxiety. So if a patient has anxiety, I guess they shouldn't have outpatient ACDF. I, 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 don't, I don't really believe that, uh, that, but that's just what this is saying. Although they don't, they don't anchor on that finding, although it is a significant finding. Then they have ENT surgeon assistance. This is for their complications. If an ENT surgeon is assisting, the odds ratio goes up to, uh, it's an odds of 7.07. So sevenfold increased risk of a an acute complication if an ENT surgeon was assisting. The problem with that, of course, is that it's not the ENT surgeon um, who's, unless maybe they're Dr. Frankenstein or uh, first assistant Igor, that's <laughs> causing the complication. That's a marker for the complexity of the surgery because the way it's presented would mean if you just didn't have, if, you know, it could be the most complex case on the face of the earth. And if you're just like, well, I'm not inviting my ENT colleague to help, then there won't be any complications. That's the problem. That's mm -hmm. not a factual representation of the issue at hand. They have a lot of findings, such as history of myocardial infarction, history of atrial fibrillation. Both of these have almost a twofold increased risk in the odds of the point estimate, twofold increase in the odds of the point estimate. 
but they have very wide confidence intervals, so they're not significant. So they ignore it. So it doesn't matter if they have a history of myocardial infarction. Actually, I think it does. And if you had a larger sample, the point estimate is indicating that this is a important factor to consider. So they have issues with type 2 error. They have issues with factual representation, kind of a erroneous attribution for some of their variables. And yeah, I mean, it's going to be tough to resuscitate uh, this one. You will need Dr. Frankenstein's clinical skills. Uh, we need a consult to kind of piece this back together after I've just, um, after just what the work I've done, I guess. And what language do you have to do that in? Does English work or no? Um, no, I, I think probably uh, Schweizerdeutsch. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have nothing else. You just put the nail in that coffin. So good work. Or the stake in that coffin. True. Our Halloween format. So that case is definitely on hold. I think it is, you know, very interesting to be talking about some of these new paradigms in orthopedic surgery as we move a lot of these inpatient, previously historically inpatient procedures to the outpatient setting. But how informative this particular context is going to be, I have questions about that for sure, if it wasn't already obvious. Now on to our honorable mentions, other scientific articles well worth the read and presented in this October issue of JDJS. Inconsistent reporting of preauthorization medical criteria for osteochondral allograft transplantation surgery by Taba and colleagues. This is permanently free, so anytime you're listening to this, you can check it out. The efficacy of bone wax and reduction of perioperative blood loss and total hip arthroplasty by a direct anterior approach, a prospective randomized clinical trial by Mortazavi and colleagues with an infographic. Characterization of genetic risk of end-stage knee osteoarthritis treated with total knee arthroplasty, a genome-wide association study by Coleman colleagues, also with a commentary. And then preperitoneal pelvic packing has a greater risk of venous thromboembolism than angioembolization, management of refractory hypotension in closed pelvic ring injury. Patterson and colleagues, 30 days free. So if you are, you know, listen to us as you should the day that this comes out, you've got 30 days to check that out if you don't have a subscription, which of course you do. So, I mean, so many ways to access these articles, of course. And this also has a commentary. So um, do see what others think about these works as well. The time has come. We are out of time. We'll try to do better next time. In the meantime, I wish you all happy Halloween. Trick or treat, but your case is still on hold. So enjoy those treats because you have time to enjoy them. Yeah, absolutely. And and in the coming month, uh, the YCOH, at least uh, half of it is going on the road. I will be in Kent, Ohio at the very end of October and at the University of Michigan in November. So uh, if you happen to be in the area, come and see me talk. Or join our podcast and enjoy the time we have. Right, you can listen to me talk all the time. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today. 